We are in the book of Galatians. Uh, we typically have a children's message, but on Sundays that we have a communion, which is the first Sunday of the month, we forego it for time's sake. We don't want to stress your patience too much, especially those with you, those of you with little ones. So we are in Galatians 1, verses 1 and 2. So preaching through Galatians is going to be a diff- bit different than preaching through Acts. We're in Acts. I took chapters. Here we'll take verses. We'll proceed pretty slow through Galatians. It's worth that kind of detail. Let me begin with a quote by Christostom. He was a early church pastor just after the uh, apostles. And he wrote in a sermon on this text, this first verse is full of great passion and strong sentiment. Keep that in mind. It doesn't immediately read like that, but Paul is firing here. He's starting with passion and strong sentiment. Listen, this is the important part. For always to speak mildly to those who are being taught, even when they need vehemence, is not the part of a teacher, but of a corrupter and an enemy. To withhold force, strong sentiment, and always teach mildly is not being a good teacher, but is actually a corrupter and an enemy. So did you catch that? I think it's something almost completely forgotten today. All right, so picture the movie Braveheart. William Wallace, you know that movie's not historically accurate, but it's fun. And uh, they're before the big battle, and he's firing them up. Imagine if he did that mildly at that point. They need vehemence. They need strong passion. And he would be doing them a disservice, and nobody would watch the movie. And so Paul, as Chrysostom says, as we know, is being a good pastor here. And throughout this whole book, remember, this Galatians has thunder. It's not a gentle spring rain. It's a thunderstorm. And so parents know this. Sometimes husbands know this. Sometimes supervisors know this. Policemen know this. There is a time for mildness, and there is a time for moderation, and there is a time for force. And this book is one of those. And uh, I'm preaching this book assuming that you don't believe that. I mean, you'll nod your head and say, yeah, but you won't. And so I hope to help you be convinced of that with kind of the right heart. I'm going to read... The first five verses, we'll focus on verse 2, and we'll especially focus on the first three words of verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God, of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. And amen. 
Let's pray. Father, may the meditations of my heart, our hearts, and the words of my mouth be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So Paul, as we said last week, is using the normal pattern of his day for letter writing for this letter. He begins with a greeting. That's these first five verses. But what is unique about this greeting, even in comparison to the other greetings of his letters, is the abruptness, the, the terseness, blunt, short of it. There's no thanksgiving. We mentioned that last week. Typically, he'll give several lines of thanksgiving for the church. That's completely gone here. And whereas he says um, to the churches in Corinth, this is his, his uh, telling who his recipients are. Listen to how he says it to Corinth. And remember, Corinth was a very, very hard church, full of fighting, undercutting his authority. And yet listen to how he speaks of them. To the church of God in Corinth, those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And then compare that to Galatians, to the churches of Galatia. You see the difference? Feel the tone there? He's angry. No names, no thanksgiving, no sweetness. He doesn't give them the dignity of the other than just to the churches in Galatia. So Paul is the author. He made the first missionary trips to this region. Uh, they're recorded in Acts 13 and 14. Paul is his Greek name. Saul is his Hebrew name. Paul names his position to who, from whom he derives his authority. It's not from men, nor a, through a man, or through man, but it's from the triune God, from the Son, from the Father who raised the Son from the dead. He is an apostle. So he's saying, as we're going to focus on, you need to listen to me. You ever do that as a parent? Or maybe as somebody working with kids? You need to listen to me. You know, you know the voice I'm talking about and the look. You need to listen to me. That's what Paul's saying here in these verses. Be quiet. Listen up. And of course, the question is why? Because I'm an apostle. Not, I didn't, I didn't make this myself. It's not of my self-will, not from men. It didn't even come mediated through other man. God didn't call me through other. Directly, the Lord appeared to me. Directly, the Father who raised me from the dead did this. Listen up. That's what this greeting is doing. The recipients, the churches in Galatia, you remember this is the only letter written to a region of churches, not to a church or to an individual, but to a region. And he'll call them, though they have this very significant error, though they have this error that's calling into question what salvation is itself. 
He still calls them the church. And so, every church has faults. Every church has theological problems. Every church has things that we wish were different, that you wish were different. Every church has people that you maybe think are trouble, though you never think you that of yourself, of course. <laughs> and you are trouble. But every church is like this, and yet the true church exists wherever the gospel, the word of God is truly preached, wherever the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper are rightly practiced, and wherever pastors and elders actually minister and shepherd and discipline their people. Those have always been held up as the marks of a true church. No matter all of the fighting and the problems and the sins and the errors, a true church is that which preaches the word rightly celebrates baptism, Lord's Supper, by faith, rightly, and where the people are actually intimately, personally known and pastored, not by a face on a screen, but by men who love you and church women who love you and are in your life. And so this is still a true church. And so I think Paul is struggling with this church. He loves them. In verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him. So he can't say much more than to the churches of Galatia. You know, your mom does this. She includes your middle name every once in a while. <laughs> that's what this is going, that's what's happening here. And so Paul is introducing us to his two great themes of this entire letter. The defense of his, of his apostolic authority, the entire first two chapters are for that. So when he says Paul, an apostle, he's going to spend the next two chapters making sure they know that, and then that we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. It's all God's work. It's God the Father who raised his son from the dead. It's God the Father that saves us. Those are the two themes of this letter. They're both here. They're starting out right away. As I said, though, we're going to focus mainly on the first three words, especially an apostle. Everything else in these first two verses supports that. So Paul, let me just say a little bit of something interesting about his name. Shortly after Paul's life, it was written of him. His name in the Greek literally means small or little. And this is what was written of his physical bearing. Shortly after his life, we have no reason to disbelieve it. It's likely true. It's, it says uh, that he was a man of small stature with a bald head and crooked legs in a good state of body, with eyebrows meeting, a nose somewhat hooked, but full of friendliness. So he wasn't physically imposing. You'll remember that the Corinthians said to him that in person he's not weighty, but his letters are full of weight. They were mocking his physical appearance, and that's true. <clears throat> well, the word itself just means a sent one, a messenger. It actually might have some naval usage, as in sending a naval commission, a ship, an admiral with his troops on a mission that was going to be long and arduous. So it's one who has authority derived from a commander, from the commander-in-chief, sent with a mission to do that's going to be difficult. It may have some legal background. 
we use the word power of attorney. Somebody with derived authority, but real authority, given on behalf of somebody else to do something. In the New Testament, in Luke chapter 6, Jesus handpicked 12 men and designated them apostles. Remember, he had a large group of disciples. At one point, hundreds of people who were following him. Thousands that he had to feed. There was this large group of disciples, and among them, he picked 12 men and named them apostles. He said, in these days, he, Jesus, went out from the mountain after prayer, all night continuing God to prayer, and when day came, he came to his disciples, this large group, and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. If you ask the kids in Awana, I think it was the Sparkies who could name all 12 for you. So go ask a Sparky. They could maybe get a bunch of them. Now an apostle were those who followed Christ during his three years of ministry, who saw him raised from the dead, and that he specifically chose to lead the church. Calvin calls them the highest order of the church. The 12 apostles, of course, are linked with the 12 tribes of Israel such that God isn't doing something completely new in the new covenant, but continuing his saving work that he began in the old covenant. All of God's people of faith in his son are one. But I want to say something here. All the apostles were men. And one of the explanations for this is that, well, that was just the way they did it back then. They were patriarchal. Women had very very low standing in society, so it wouldn't have been appropriate yet then to choose women for this, so he just chose men. And I just want to say, could we be any more proud of ourselves looking back on the Lord himself and saying, well, he just wasn't as culturally advanced yet. Why did he choose men? Why is the consistent record throughout the scripture that men are put in positions of authority and not women? Is it because women are not capable? Not intelligent enough? No. Like there are some very good examples of godly women in the Bible who are incredible leaders and in our church. Why is it? Because Adam was created first and then Eve. And that creation order is applied everywhere in the Bible. Do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. So Paul is an apostle. And he is doing what we may find cringeworthy here. He is pulling rank at the front of the letter. He's telling them with three words, I am an apostle and you need to listen to me because you are in terrible, terrible danger because you've listened to others. You have forsaken the word of God by forsaking what I've told you and you need to listen. Why? Because I'm an apostle. That's what he's doing here. He's not doing it in a childish way. He's not doing it in a heavy-handed, lording it over them way. This is full of fatherly love and concern. Truly, 
And as I said, the first two chapters are going to be backing up those two words, an apostle. Now, what does it mean, not from men, one, nor through man, two? He's, of course, defining the source, the origin of his apostleship. It's not from men, nor through man. Luther, if you want the best commentary on Galatians, it's Luther's commentary on Galatians. If you can find the unabridged one, that's better, but the abridged one will do. It's, it's excellent. Most people say that if Paul were alive in Luther time, he would have sounded like Luther. Modern commentaries are largely rubbish on it, except for Tim, Timothy George. Is that his name? That's good. This is what Luther says about those two. Not from men, Luther says, means those who trust in themselves when neither God nor man calls or sends them, but they run and speak of themselves. When Paul says he's not an apostle from men, he means it's not like self-willed, self-derived. He's saying, God told me I got to be the apostle, and it's all selfish. It didn't find its source in him, ultimately. Luther says when he says, nor through man, he means those who have a divine calling, but by man as by means. So, biblically, someone called by God to ministry very rarely came directly from God and not through any other man as a mediator. Right? We think of Noah, Moses, of course these apostles, but mostly... 99% of the time, somebody's calling from God is sensed by themselves, but then is through others. So when Paul and Barnabas were sent to go do missionary work, it came through the church in Antioch. King David's calling was mediated through a prophet, Samuel. So typically in the church... We ordain men to the ministry, two pastors, two elders, or deacon. That calling comes through a man. That's important. People should be very careful in our day of anyone who says, I'm called by God, you need to listen to me. And make sure you send your checks too. That is almost what follows. So another way to say it is, in our era, there is really no more direct calling of apostles. There's no more apostles. There's only been 12. That's all there'll ever be. Almost all of the callings in our day will be mediated through a man, but not Paul's. Paul's apostleship didn't originate with himself in any self-old way. It didn't come through the normal, right means of God calling through others. It came directly from God. And not just from God generally, blandly, but through Jesus Christ, through God the Father, who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Paul's apostleship comes directly from the triune God. Now here, it isn't saying Jesus isn't God. It's showing us the distinction that we worship one God who is three. It's actually showing that Jesus is equal with God the Father. There's this equality. There's also this agreement One of the glorious realities of the Trinity is that they are in agreement on our salvation. 
They're in agreement on whom the Son would choose to be the rocks upon which the church would build the apostles. They agreed eternally on this choice. So why is Paul reminding them of his highest position and its source, his authority? Why? Okay, go back to Genesis 3. I mean, you don't have to turn there, just in your minds. Go there. You can turn there if you'd like. I'm not going to. Adam and Eve were given God's word. They were told that they could eat of anything. It's all theirs. They were told to take dominion over it. They were told to be fruitful and bear many children who would spread the glories of Eden throughout the globe. But they were refused one thing. One thing was said no to. And then another voice came into the garden. A serpent. Who countered God's voice. Who undermined God's voice, and Adam and Eve had a choice. Continue to listen to God, the Creator, the one who's provided us all things, or Satan. And lusting after the fruit, desiring in themselves and their hearts wickedly to be like God, they listened to Satan and not God. And now, how did God get them back? How did God bring them to repentance and cover their nakedness and sin? Authoritatively, didn't he? He questioned them. He put them in the judgment seat and judged them with authority. He used his voice, his authority to call them back from the voice of that which would destroy them which did destroy them and us. Called them back to his word with his authority. That's exactly what's happening here. Paul went to Galatia. He preached the gospel. He said that salvation was only going to be by faith in Christ alone. And other voices came after he left and said, no, it's not by faith alone. You must be circumcised. No, it's not by faith in Christ alone. You must... Eat this and not that. No, it's not by faith in Christ alone. You can only take this many steps on the Sabbath and not that many. No, it's not by faith in Christ alone. You have to wear a skirt that's past this point, and if it's not, you're going to hell. I made that one up. So there was an alternative voice. So Paul, being a good father, has to, in love, demand that they stop listening to that voice and listen to his because he alone, not them, was called by God to preach the gospel, to preach the good news, to call them to repentance. And so he says, I am an apostle. Listen to me. Oh, how much pain you would have been spared if you would listen to your father and not other voices, right? How much pain would you have been spared if you would have listened to your pastor, listened to a teacher, listened to a friend? 
Now, back to Chrysostom's quote. The first verse is full of great passion and strong sentiment for always to speak mildly to those who are being taught when they need vehemence is not the part of a teacher but of a corrupter and an enemy. Right? Doesn't that make sense now? He's not playing psychological games with them. He's not trying to understate his authority in order to win your heart so that then he can woo you with good words. He's reminding them that his authority comes from God directly and that they need to stop listening to those who will do them eternal harm and give him their hearts, their ears. Why? Because the stakes couldn't be any higher. This is about justification before God. This is about whether or not you are accepted by God or condemned. It's either by works or by faith. And Paul, the apostle called and sent by God, whose position and authority are from God, is making sure that they know who is real and who is false, who is right and who is wrong, who is the righteous authority and who is the unrighteous. So he comes out firing. Okay. Everybody with me there. You see the, what's happening here. You see the goodness of Paul doing this. Now, you've been around people who do what Paul's doing here, but do it very cringy and constantly because they're very weak and pathetic. They have to constantly remind you of their position, maybe like a supervisor at work. They constantly have to pull rank, and it's very annoying. Or a husband who constantly says, I'm your head, I'm your head, I'm your head, I'm your head, I'm your head. Has to remind you of their authority. It's not what Paul's doing here. Somebody who does that has to keep doing that because they don't actually have any authority in bearing. They haven't done the work that they need to do to gain your hearing, to gain your following. It's not what Paul's doing here. Okay, let me let me apply it like this. So that's the sermon. Now let me do some application. What happens when somebody who has God-given authority doesn't use it? When somebody who needs to use vehemence only ever speaks mildly. When somebody who needs to say no only and ever hardly says yes. What happens? Well, let's look at it. Turn over to chapter 5, verse 15. This is what happens when authority isn't used. When authority, because you think that we can't use authority, it's mean to use authority, it's wrong to make sure that they know your authority. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. What happens when those with God-given authority, be it a husband, a father, a mother, a pastor, elder, supervisor at work, a mayor, a police officer, what happens when they will not use authority? Chaos. Fighting. Biting and devouring. Consuming each other. 
Look at the list in verses, or chapter 5, verses 19 to 21, these works of the flesh. Notice how many of them deal with relational conflict. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. When godly authority is not picked up and used, it creates chaos between everybody. Okay, feminism tells men and women they're married that there's no difference. There's no headship and submission. There's no obvious division of responsibilities in the household. You know what that what that causes in a marriage, right? Constant fighting over everything. What happens when a father won't say no to his children? A mother won't say no to his children. What happens when a husband won't say no to what he wants all the time? Chaos and fighting and envy and rivalry and dissension. So our culture is one that's very aware of abuse of authority. We are hypersensitive in our day to those in authority who abuse it, who are heavy-handed. Rightly so. That is a sin, to abuse authority, to lord it over, to be harsh. We're very aware of that. We're completely blind to the chaos resulting, not from abuse of authority, but from the neglect of it. We refuse out of a fear of man, out of wrong-headed thinking, to rightly use authority. When I was in seminary at Gordon-Conwell, I, I, I cannot think of this man's name, and I looked on the Gordon-Conwell's website, and I couldn't find it, so forgive me, but he was, in, he, he was in leadership at our seminary. He wasn't a professor. He was somebody who oversaw the students' program, and at the end of the Master of Divinity, you had to do like an end-of-program capstone project, and he would come and observe it and grade it. Really good man. A really, really good man. But he would tell a story. In his first pastorate, um, one of the, his failures was he never said no to people. He thought that's what he should do. He thought that's what a good pastor was. If somebody had come with an idea, he never said no. Everything was a good idea. <laughs> he, he didn't discipline sin. He didn't deal with the fighting. He thought that's what he was supposed to do. In fact, that's what seminary teaches you to do. Because... <laughs> A good father, a good husband, never says no. And he realized that he just created chaos in his church. And his pastor ended very badly. And the point of his story was, you need to exercise your authority. You need to say no. And that is always the test of using your authority. Now, of course, you can abuse it, you can be harsh, you can have lack of relational love and lack of relational commitment and be a real jerk. We're not talking about that. We're talking about a husband who will never say no to his wife because he's so afraid of her. 
there's never a fight in the marriage. It's because he won't ever fight. Fathers and mothers who won't say no to their children. They're constantly having endless conversations and arguments, trying to convince them, trying to cajole them. But they'll never just say, no. And when they say, why? You just say, no. I said no. Because I'm your father. Would you knock it off, please? He won't do that. We have police officers now afraid to use any kind of authority, any kind of force, because they're being videoed. And so that's what's happening here. And it's loving of Paul to flex his authority muscles right away. Okay, so you see the application. God will call you to account for the authority he's given you and how you've used it. And you are convinced that the only judgment you'll receive is for abusing it, not for neglecting it. So the fear of God would cause us to use our authority. Use it rightly, use it godly, use it for the glory of God and the good of others. That's what Paul's doing here. He's not using this for selfish purposes. He's not using them because he's sick and tired of them. In love, for their good, to the glory of God, he is a pastor called to warn his sheep. And if he will not warn his sheep and they perish for it, which they're headed in that direction, the blood will be on his hands. But in love, if he warns them, and if he calls them back, he'll gain. But if he warns them, they go on, then it's on them. So can we please use our authority? Even more so, can we please submit to those that God has put in authority over us? Notice that Paul says in verse 2, and all the brothers who are with me. (laughs) Why does he say that? Because he wants to make sure the Galatians know. Pastor Mark turned me on to this. He's making sure the Galatians know. He's not like some solo dude out there fighting. Everybody agrees with him who's anybody. We'll see this in Acts 15. The whole Jerusalem council is behind Paul. All of the other apostles... James, the brother of Jesus, all of them are with Paul on this question. This is something that gives me a lot of comfort in my pastor because there's many times I think I've lost it because people are mad at me, Chris said something, and I wonder if I've just lost my mind. And then I look and say, no, like Chris Ostom is with me and Augustine is with me and Luther is with me and Calvin's with me and Terry Fries is with me and Pastor Jeff is, is with me. So that person's nuts. I'm not nuts. Right. I'm right again. That's what Paul's doing that for. So, husbands, you have to use your authority for good. Fathers and mothers, you have to use your authority for good. You have to say no a lot. And just know Children, wives, church members, citizens, employees, your calling 
is to work with those that God has put in authority over you in such a way that they have joy in their authority. Hebrews 13, 17. That they find in you somebody that it's a delight to lead. It's not that you never question them. It's not that you never tell them you're wrong. That's your job too. But that generally what they receive from you is glad following. That's our calling. That's our calling. Let's pray. Father, help us with these things. We know that all authority comes from you. And so that we have none apart from you. Help us to submit to your authority and your word. Help us to submit gladly with faith those that you've placed over us, whether or not they're doing what we want, especially when they're not. God, um, help us, Heavenly Father, to use what you've given us in a way that is for your glory and for the good of others, not for our selfish purposes, not for our comfort, not for our monetary increase, not to get people on our side, but for their eternal good, for their growth in Christ, for the building up of the church, for the protection of others. And so, God, please work this in us. Um, We live in a rebellious age, God, and so we need help. We need ears to hear this. We need hearts to receive this, and so please help us now. In Jesus' name. Amen.